We're continuing on our study in Colossians called Established in Grace, and this is teaching number 34. It's called Praying for the Proclamation of the Mystery of Christ. It comes out of Colossians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, and Paul writes, he says, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message. Now, that's what we looked at last week, the message of Paul, the message of the gospel of grace. So we went in-depthly into the revelation of grace that the ascended Jesus gave Paul, and Paul went out and proclaimed this message of the gospel of grace. So Paul writes again in Colossians 4, 3 through 4, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. That's what we're going to look at this morning, the mystery of Christ, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. So Paul's writing from a Roman prison. He says, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. So Paul's passion was to communicate the gospel of grace. That's his message. His passion was to communicate the mystery of Christ. And he wanted to communicate it clearly. He wanted to communicate it so that people could understand it because the power of the mystery of Christ changes the lives of people. The power of the gospel of grace changes the lives of people. So Paul wanted to very clearly help people understand the mystery of Christ. So in this verse, Paul asked for prayer in two areas. Area number one, he asked that the Colossians would would pray that God would create an opportunity for Paul and his companions to proclaim their message of grace and the mystery of Christ. And then area number two, Paul asked that the Colossians would pray that Paul would communicate clearly the mystery of Christ. So in part one of our study, we examined the message from Christ, the gospel of grace. And today in part two of our study, we're going to examine the mystery of Christ. So what is the mystery of Christ that Paul writes about in Colossians that he wanted to clearly communicate so that people could understand the mystery of Christ, so they could be changed, they could be transformed by the mystery of Christ? Well, Paul writes about first that the mystery is Christ is completely God. Look what Paul writes in Colossians 2, 2 through 4. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely, or who is Christ, that they may know the mystery of God, who is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So that was Paul's heart. Paul wanted people to know that God has revealed himself to the human race in the person of Jesus. God remains a mystery to people all over the world. Who is God? Can you know God? Is there a God? Does God exist? How did we get here? One of Paul's goals in communicating the mystery of Christ is to communicate that, yes, there is a God, and everything we want to know about God is found in the person of Christ. Jesus has revealed himself completely to us in Christ. Look at Colossians 2, 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So Christ is completely God. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says the Son, that's Jesus, 
is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, or the ruler over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I examined that verse pretty deeply early in Colossians. I write about the seven descriptions of the Son or I teach about the seven descriptions of the sun. So you can go to my podcast. I don't think it's on my YouTube channel, but you can go to my podcast, Grace Reach with Brad Robertson, and look at these seven descriptions of the sun, which is the revelation that God is Jesus. He has revealed himself to us in Jesus. All right, so Paul is proclaiming the mystery of Christ. So we just looked at Christ is completely God. Second, Paul teaches that you are complete in Christ, the mystery, this mystery that Paul wanted to make known is our completeness in the work of Christ, in what Christ has done for us. So you are complete in Christ. Look at Colossians 2.10. And you have been made complete in Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. It's already been done. You have been made through the work of Christ, through what Christ has done for us, you are complete in Christ, which means that there's nothing left for us to do to try to get right with God, to make ourselves right with God, to try to obtain something with God or measure up to something God, we, we think God may want us to measure up to. We've been made complete in the person of Christ and what he's done for us. So let's take a look in Colossians at the verses that reveal just how complete in Christ are we. We're totally complete. But these verses are going to explain to us the totality of our completeness in Christ. Look at Colossians 1, 13 through 14. It says this, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, Paul's talking about the post-work of Christ on the cross. And so we don't want to confuse the earthly ministry of Jesus with the work of Jesus on the cross. Because prior to Jesus dying on the cross, nobody was complete. Everybody was incomplete. When Christ went to the cross, something changed. Something happened. His blood changed things. His blood made us complete. His resurrection made us complete. His ascension, his spirit living in us made us complete. And it says, we have been rescued from the dominion of darkness. Now, the dominion of darkness is stumbling through life without any meaning or purpose. It's seeking who is God. Can you know God? It's being in the dark. It's not having the knowledge that we need about who God is and what Christ has done for us. And so we've been rescued from a life without meaning, a life without purpose. And we've been brought into the kingdom of his beloved son, which means we're citizens of the kingdom of God. We're citizens of the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus is the king 
of the kingdom. And one day Jesus is going to return and he's going to establish his kingdom on earth. We're already citizens of the kingdom. And he's going to return and establish this kingdom on earth. If you look at, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. If you just wanted to make a note, Acts 26, 15 through 18, that's the message of the ascended Jesus to Paul. And in this message of the ascended Jesus to Paul, he tells Paul to go out and to proclaim the complete forgiveness of sins to people and that they're completely sanctified through faith in Jesus. And in coming to this complete forgiveness, knowing that they're sanctified or made holy by faith, not by trying, because God's done everything completely for us in Christ. And if God's completely done everything for us in Christ, our only response is that of faith. Our only response is that of trust. And so in Acts 26, 15 through 18, Jesus sends Paul, and he talks about to bring people out of or to rescue people from the dominion of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of light or the dominion of light. So Paul's carrying out the message of Jesus. He's, he's fulfilling the mission of Jesus for him. All right, to us, to the Gentiles, to, to people all over the world, to let them know who Christ is and what Christ has done for them. So it talks here, you're completely rescued from the dominion of darkness and you're brought into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his beloved son. And how did this happen? In whom we have redemption. Now, redemption is the full payment of our sin penalty. All of our sins have been fully paid for by the blood of Christ. There's no sin penalty left to be paid for us. We have been redeemed. Our sin penalty has been paid in full. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So remember, God was in Christ. Jesus is completely God. And we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We're in Christ. All right. So we're complete in Christ. We are completely forgiven. We have the forgiveness of sins. We have means we possess it. It's ours. It's eternally ours. So we have the forgiveness of sins. And since we have the forgiveness of sins, since we possess forgiveness, it is unbiblical for a believer to request God to forgive them. Because why would I request God to forgive me for something that I possess? If we possess forgiveness, if we have forgiveness, then why do I need to request forgiveness? Why do I need to ask for forgiveness? Now, that's traditional. It's traditionally taught. But understand that what is traditional may not be what's biblical. It certainly wasn't during the days of Jesus. Remember all the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they had many traditional teachings that were accepted as truth. But when Jesus said, your teachings are just man-made teachings, they're, they're not from God, they're man-made, then they got upset with Jesus. Here's what I want us to understand. Just because something is traditional doesn't mean it's biblical. Just because it's been passed down from generation to generation and so many people have taught it doesn't mean it's biblical. We always want to look into Scripture to see what's biblical. And if what's biblical is in contrast to what's traditional, 
then I have to go with what's biblical over what's traditional. And if I don't, then I'm putting the words of men above the word of God. And when we go with what's biblical, we're not going to be popular. The religious leaders, the religious crowd, many church leaders are going to reject those who teach what's biblical over what's traditional. And what's biblical here is, is we have the forgiveness of sins. We possess forgiveness. We don't ask for forgiveness. We don't request forgiveness. We accept God's forgiveness through faith in Jesus. And then once we accept God's forgiveness through faith in Jesus, then we possess it. See, the message that Jesus sent Paul on to communicate was not a message to unbelievers that, hey, you need to ask God to forgive you. The message was this. God is asking you to receive the forgiveness that Jesus purchased for you on the cross. And how do we receive forgiveness? Well, exactly the way Jesus said in Acts 26, verse 18, by faith. All right, so we're complete in Christ. We're completely rescued from the dominion of darkness and we're brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. We're completely redeemed in that, that all of our sins have been paid for in full and we're completely forgiven. So we want to start thanking God that we are forgiven rather than asking him over and over and over to forgive us because he's not going to forgive us anymore because we're completely forgiven. All right. So we just want to spend our lives thanking him that we are forgiven rather than requesting for forgiveness. All right. In Colossians 1.22, Paul writes further about our completeness in Christ. He writes, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy, unblemished, and blameless in his presence. All right, this is for those who've come to faith in Christ. They're abiding in what Christ did on the cross. The NIV says, if you continue in the faith, or if you abide in these truths, if, if you come to accept these as truth, if you come to faith in Christ, you are completely reconciled to God, which means that the sin barrier between humanity and God has been removed completely. There is no sin that will keep a person from being in relationship with God. The sin barrier has been totally removed. You can read more about that in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. And when a person comes to faith in Jesus, then they enter into that reconciliation. Okay, we're completely reconciled to God. We're in a love relationship with God through faith in Christ. And if there was a sin that I needed to be forgiven of, if I had to continually ask God for forgiveness, then I would move from being reconciled to being unreconciled, reconciled to unreconciled. And what the traditional teaching says is this, where you move from being out of fellowship to in fellowship. If you have sin in your life and it's, if it's unconfessed sin, and if you don't confess it, then you're out of fellowship with God. Probably one of the most influential Bible teachers, Bible speakers in America today, yesterday in his teaching said, if we don't continually ask God to forgive us, then God can't forgive us. That in order for a believer to be continually forgiven and to be in continual fellowship, we have to continually ask for forgiveness. That's a very traditional teaching that's accepted by so many people but it's simply not biblical. We are forgiven. We don't, we don't live in a state of perpetual forgiveness and being in and out of fellowship with God, because if that were true, really it would be in and out of being reconciled to God. 
the sin would become a barrier between us and God. And, and the traditional teaching is to remove the barrier, you need to confess it, which then is to water down the blood of Christ as if the blood of Christ didn't remove the barrier already. Our sins were taken and nailed to the cross. We've been reconciled to God permanently. We're completely reconciled to God through faith in Christ and what Jesus did for us on the cross. We're holy. We're completely holy before God, the verse says. Pure, clean. The blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. We don't continually purify ourselves from sin by constant confession. When we come to faith in Christ, that one time coming to faith in Christ, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin, reaches back into the past, all the way into the future, and into our present day lives, we are holy before God. We are completely holy. We will always be completely holy because the blood of Christ is eternal, and it's an eternal covenant that we live in. It's the new covenant. We live in this eternal covenant. So we're eternally reconciled to God. We're eternally holy and righteous and pure and clean before God. He says, also, we're unblemished before God. Remember Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb had to be unblemished on the Day of Atonement. Or Jesus, the unblemished Lamb, the perfect spotless Lamb, took all of our sins upon the cross. We then become unblemished. The blood of Christ has made us perfect before God. The writer of Hebrews writes about that in Hebrews 10, verse 14. You and I have been made completely perfect before God. We don't try to get ourselves right with God. We don't try to get ourselves clean before God. We don't try to reconcile ourselves to God by works. We just simply receive by faith all that God has done for us in Christ. And then it says we're completely blameless before God. That means there's nothing God can accuse us of. There's no sin that God can say, hey, you're guilty for this sin. Why? Because the blood of Jesus took care of that sin on the cross for us. He took our guilt upon himself at the cross. Jesus took the blame for our sin upon himself at the cross. And now we're blameless before God. So we're completely reconciled to God. We're completely holy before God. We're completely perfect or unblemished before God. We're completely blameless before God. Colossians 2.12 reveals more about our completeness in Christ. It says, And having been buried with him in baptism, you were raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Being buried with Christ in baptism, the baptism referring to here, I believe, is the baptism where Jesus went to the cross. He ushered in the new covenant. He ushered in the new Testament, this new way of relating to God, which we looked at that in teachings in the past when we were on this verse. And we've been identified with Christ in the new Testament or in the new covenant or in his work on the cross, his work on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his life in us. We've been identified with Christ. I mean, we can't get more complete right than that. If I've been completely identified with Christ and his work, well, then I'm complete. And we want to live from that completeness. That's why Paul calls people saints, to the holy ones, to the righteous ones, to the perfect ones, to the unblemished ones, to the redeemed ones, to the forgiven ones. That's what the word saint means. He never calls anybody a sinner saved by grace. We were sinners. We were saved by grace. But now to the saints in Colossae, to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Corinth, to the saints. We are the holy, forgiven, 
unblemished ones before God. We are saints. That's our complete identity in Christ when he refers to us as saints. Now, look in Colossians 3, 13 through 14 about our completeness in Christ. It says, when you were dead and your trespasses, we're all born spiritually dead. The penalty for sin is death. When you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's the sinful state before coming to faith in Christ, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our trespasses, having canceled the debt ascribed to us in the decrees that stood against us. That's the decrees against us as we've broken the law. And when we stand guilty before God, apart from Christ, now look what Jesus did. Jesus took it away. What did Jesus take away? He took away the sin debt. He completely took away the sin debt. He took it away. And where did Jesus take our sin debt to? Nailing it to the cross. So our sin debt has been completely canceled. It's been nailed to the cross. Remember, John talking about Jesus said, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus has taken all the sins of all the people in the entire world. And he's taken these sins to the cross. They've been nailed to the cross. That's why God is not asking us to ask him to forgive us. I mean, how many of us ask Jesus to go to the cross? Nobody asked Jesus to go to the cross. God in Christ went to the cross for us. And now he's asking us to receive what he did for us on the cross, which part of that is forgiveness. We're receiving what Jesus has completely done for us. We're not asking for any of it. He's asking us to receive it by faith, to trust that it's real and it's true and to receive it by faith. So your sin debt has been completely canceled. It's been nailed to the cross. There's no sin in the past. There's no sin in the present. There's no sin in the future that has not already been paid for by Christ. And because it's been paid for, it's been canceled. It's been done. It's been finished. And if I'm asking God to forgive me, then what I'm saying is my sin debt hasn't been canceled. You know, if we logically think through the gospel, just from a logical standpoint, we sing a song in church. You guys probably sing it as well. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. But right after that, the pastor will begin teaching in many churches, well, you need to ask God to forgive you. Well, I thought we just saying that he paid it all. Well, if he paid it all, I just need to rest in the fact that it's been paid. And I possess that payment now. That payment is my payment for my sins. We don't keep asking. We accept it. We're fully forgiven forever. And if we're asking for forgiveness, then what we're saying is, you know what? My sin debt is not completely paid. And I'm going to ask for forgiveness. He goes on to say in here that when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our trespasses, which means all of our sins. You are completely forgiven of all your sins. There are no more sins left to be forgiven. That's the good news of the gospel. This is the mystery of Christ. This is what Christ has done for us. This was unknown before the cross of Jesus. This mystery was concealed before the cross of Jesus. Well, how do we know that? Because remember in the Lord's Prayer, if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. Remember Matthew 18. If you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. The mystery was not revealed yet 
during the earthly ministry of Christ. It was concealed in the heart of God until the work of Christ on the cross. So we don't want to mix the pre-cross ministry of Jesus to Israel with the post-cross ministry of Jesus to the world where he gave Paul this message to go to the Gentiles to teach them that you're completely forgiven. All your sins have been forgiven. You're completely righteous. You're unblemished. You're holy before God, all because of the work of Christ on the cross. Remember, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus hadn't died yet. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus hasn't died yet. It's still his earthly ministry to the nation of Israel. His ministry to the Gentiles has not come yet through Paul to the world to proclaim this mystery of complete forgiveness. And what's really sad is so many believers today don't understand what I'm sharing and what Scripture tells us that they mix scriptures all together. For example, in Chronicles chapter 7, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways and, and seek me, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins. Well, the our people there is not the body of Christ. The our people there is not the church. The our people there is the nation of Israel under the law of Moses, that if they broke the law, and if they turned back to God after they had been sent into all these nations, then God would hear their prayer and he would heal the land of Israel. All right, so we don't want to confuse that with now the post-work of Christ on the cross where all of our sins are forgiven. God's not waiting to hear us from heaven so he can forgive our sins. God stepped out of heaven to earth in the person of Christ and nailed our sin debt to the cross. We live on this side of the cross, not the chronicle side of the cross. And we don't mix the two together. To mix those two together is to weaken the cross. It's really to make the gospel powerless because we're watering down the blood of Jesus with the law. We're mixing law and grace together, and you can't do that. We're not under law we're under grace. And the scripture is very clear about that. Now, traditional teaching mixes all that together. Very popular, well-known evangelists mix it all together. They'll have prayer rallies based upon Second Chronicles 7.14. I mean, how many prayer rallies do we have based upon Paul's prayer, which is Colossians 4.3 through 4? I mean, why don't we have some prayer rallies where we're praying that God opens doors that people can understand the gospel of grace, that people can understand the mystery of Christ. That, that's the prayer rally for the church, not Second Chronicles 7.14, but Colossians 4.3-4. That's the prayer rally believers coming together and praying that God opens a door for the message of the gospel of grace to go to unbelievers so that it can be clearly proclaimed and, and they can come to understand it. But we have prayer rallies based upon a verse in the Old Testament rather than this New Testament work of Christ on the cross. All right, so notice it says here that you've been made alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. The penalty for sin is death, right? When sin entered the human race, death entered the human race. So sin causes death. Sin is not for the believer being out of fellowship with God. You can't find that anywhere in Scripture. Sin causes death, eternal separation from God, unless the work of Christ on the cross 
enters into a person's life by faith, by believing, then we go from being eternally separated to eternally connected to God, eternally in relationship with God. Now, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. If all of our sins aren't forgiven, then we can't be made alive with Christ. If there's one sin in my life that I've got to ask God to forgive me for, then that one sin has caused me to die spiritually. Because the results of sin is not being out of fellowship with God. The result of sin is being spiritually dead. We've been made alive with Christ. His resurrection is our resurrection. How? Because Jesus defeated sin at the cross. He was buried. He rose after making that payment. You and I have been made alive with Christ, which means there's no more sins that need to be forgiven for us. If there's any more sins that I need to be forgiven of, I'm not alive with Christ because the penalty for sin is death. The penalty has been paid for in full. We're completely forgiven. It's been completely paid for. And now we're completely alive with Christ. All right, that's the good news of the gospel. That's this mystery that Paul's wanting to communicate clearly to the people of the world. We're alive with Christ. We're forgiven before Christ. Now, because we are complete in Christ, Colossians 2.16 says you are completely free from the control of spiritual leaders. Look what Colossians 2.16 says. Therefore, let no one judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a feast, a new moon, or a Sabbath. Now, he's writing to those in Colossae during the early first century church who the leaders of Judaism were in Colossae and trying to get the church under the law of Moses. They were trying to get them to abide by what's in the book of Leviticus and what's in the book of Deuteronomy. Notice what it says, do not let anyone judge you or control you by what you eat or drink, the dietary laws of Moses with regard to a festival, that there were seven festivals that the nation of Israel had to abide by. A new moon was one of the festivals, the Sabbath, which was Friday evening to Saturday evening. And they were trying to be forced to abide by the law of Moses rather than enjoy the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have people today trying to get us under the law of Moses for the most part. Typically, there's spiritual leaders don't understand the mystery of Christ. They don't understand the fullness of what God has done for us in Christ. And so they're trying to get us under their law, their requirements, their rule. One of their rules is, hey, you need to ask God to forgive you every day so that you can stay in right relationship with God and stay in fellowship with God. You're free from that pastor. You're free from the pastor who would tell you, you need to have a quiet time every day so that you can be close to God. No, you're close to God because Christ lives in you and the blood of Christ has cleansed you from all sin. You're free from from the pastors and the spiritual leaders who will tell you, you need to journal every day. That was something I was told. You need to journal. You need to have a quiet time. You need to keep a journal. We hear people talking about all kinds of things about Christianity and this legalistic discipleship world that exists, except what Jesus did at the cross except the mystery of what Paul is communicating here. I mean, how many messages have believers heard that you're completely forgiven, you're completely righteous, you're completely holy, you're unblemished before God, you're alive with Christ, 
you don't ask for forgiveness. You receive the forgiveness of God, and then you're, you're, you live in that eternal forgiveness. Most believers have never heard any messages on the New Testament. And I'm not talking about books. Again, I'm talking about the blood of Christ that cleanses from all sin. They've never heard even one message on what the New Testament or the New Covenant really is. But they celebrate it weekly at church or monthly at church or quarterly at church. They're, quote, celebrating something they, they've never been explained. And so once you come to understand what I'm sharing with you today and what Scripture clearly shares with us, you're going to be in the minority of those who are living in these truths. And the majority of Bible teachers and pastors and small group leaders and Sunday school teachers They're going to try to pull you away from this and get you back to the traditional teachings. They're going to try to pull you away from what's biblical and back to what's traditional. But just know what Paul is writing to the Colossian people is you are free from the control of these spiritual leaders. Don't give them that power over you. The power in your life is the gospel, not any person or any pastor or any discipleship leader or mentor. The power is always the gospel. Look what Paul writes about being free from the control of spiritual leaders in Colossians 2.8. He says, be careful not to allow anyone. Now that anyone really does mean anyone. The pastor, the Bible teacher, the popular Bible teacher, the small group leader, the mentor, anyone, anyone who's trying to pull you away from the gospel of grace, the mystery of Christ, the fullness of forgiveness, anybody trying to pull you away from the truths of what Jesus did on the cross. And then they would never admit that. They would never say, oh, I'm trying to pull you away from what Jesus did on the cross. They would never say that. But when they're saying, hey, you need to have that quiet time every day to be close to God, well, they just pulled you away from the cross. Need a journal to be close to God. They just pulled you away from the cross. Need to confess your sins every day to stay right with God. They just pulled you away from the cross. They pull people away from the cross when they, when they give some kind of daily, weekly, monthly, or yearly requirement that somebody has to do to, to get close to God or stay forgiven before God. Because what they're saying is, in reality, you're not complete in Christ. You're not complete. There's things you have to do. But Paul's telling the Colossian people, you are complete. Don't let these religious leaders tell you you're not complete in Christ and don't allow them to control you and to have power over you. So he says, be careful not to allow anyone. So we have the power. The power rests in the believer. And the only power that a spiritual leader has is the power that I give them. Other than that, they have no power. You and I, as believers in Christ, who live in the mystery of what God has done for us in Christ, who understand the mystery of what God has done for us in Christ, the power is with us because the power is the gospel. So be careful not to allow anyone to captivate you through an empty and deceptive philosophy. According to human tradition, tradition is so strong and so powerful and so deceptive Because traditionally, it's been taught over and over and over and over again. And because it's been taught over and over again, year after year after year, it seems to be true. And because the majority of the people who believe it or who are communicating it, it must be true. You know, in Scripture, the majority was always wrong. The majority was always wrong in Scripture. The majority didn't want to go into the promised land. 
Caleb and Joshua, two of the 12. Ten of the 12 didn't want to go in. Two of the 12 did. The majority can keep a person wandering in the desert for a long time. The promised land of the Old Testament, the promised land of the Jewish scriptures is, represents grace to us in the New Testament. It's coming into grace. Paul writes about that in Colossians chapter 3 and 4. So don't let the majority keep you from entering into the promised land of grace so that we're wandering in the desert with the majority for, for years rather than living in the promised land of grace. Look, the majority wanted to nail Jesus to the cross, right? Don't think, well, just because this is what the majority believe, it must be true. Because if we're going to go with that, then what we would have to say is this, because of the majority of the people of Israel in John 19 chanted for Jesus to go to the cross, then they must have been right. Because the majority of the people coming out of Egypt didn't want to go into the promised land, well, they must have been right. But what we see in scripture is the majority was always wrong. The majority of pastors that I know and, and believers that I know, small group leaders, don't teach the fullness of what Christ did on the cross. They just bring it all together. And it's traditionally taught. But just because it's traditional doesn't mean it's biblical. So be careful not to allow anyone to captivate you with their smooth talking and their great presentation and their stage presence and their personality and their powerful delivery and their polished sermon. Don't let anyone captivate you through an empty and deceptive philosophy according to human tradition, according to the elementary principles of the world or the religious world, which is a system of, of works, these elementary principles of works. If you're not complete, there's more to do. So be careful not to allow anyone to captivate you through an empty and deceptive philosophy according to human tradition according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Here's what a true Bible teacher is going to always do. is always going to point you to the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Always going to point you to, to what Jesus did for you. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm listening to a legalist. When they don't, they don't make a big deal about what Jesus did on the cross, they make a bigger deal about, hey, you need to be in a small group if you're going to grow. Boy, you need to be praying. You need to be reading your Bible. You need to be meditating on Scripture. You need to be memorizing Scripture. You need to be journaling. You need to be confessing your sins every day to stay forgiven. See, they're making a big deal about the list, about your works of what you need to do. But what Paul says is we need to be centered on Christ and what he did. That's where the power of life changes, is in the person of Christ. He's completely God, and we are complete in Christ. So we're answering the question, what is the mystery of Christ that Paul writes about in Colossians? And remember, the mystery is something that was concealed until it was revealed. It was concealed prior to the work of Christ on the cross. All right, so it was concealed during the earthly ministry of Jesus, but it was later revealed this mystery of, of who God is in Christ and what has Christ fully done for us, it was later revealed. So what is this mystery of Christ that Paul writes about in Colossians? Well, we've looked at Christ as completely God. We've looked at believers, we are complete in Christ. 
Now let's look at number three, Christ completely dwells in you. Colossians 1, 24 through 27. Paul talks about the church. I became its servant by the commission God gave me to fully proclaim to you the word of God. Now let's stop there for a minute. The word of God here is not talking about the Bible. It's not talking about, well, I'm fully proclaiming the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. That's not what that's saying, because first of all, John had not gotten the revelation of the book of Revelation yet, so it couldn't be talking about that. The Bible wasn't even in existence at this point in time, so it couldn't be talking about the Bible. Well, what is the word of God that Paul is talking about here? Well, he tells us, I became the servant of the church by teaching, by communicating clearly the mystery of Christ. He says, I became the servant of the church by the commission God gave me to fully proclaim to you the word of God. Here it is. Here's the word of God that God said, Paul, here's what I want you to share. Here's my words that I want you to share to people. Here it is. The mystery that was hidden for ages and generations but is now revealed to his saints. You know how many times the word saint is used before we start seeing it showing up in Acts and in the writings of Paul? Zero. Paul refers to believers over 60 times and calls them saints. That's this revelation to the saints. Remember, a mystery is something that was concealed until it was revealed. The mystery, remember, we're looking at the prayer of Paul. He's asking the Colossians, hey, pray for me that I would communicate this mystery clearly and that God would open doors for me to communicate this message to people clearly. The mystery, here's the mystery that's referring back to Colossians 4, 3 through 4. The mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, it was hidden during the earthly ministry of Jesus. This message had not yet been revealed yet because Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. It was concealed in the heart of God. God knew it was coming, but humanity didn't know it was coming. But it was eventually revealed. And Paul says, I want to communicate what has now been revealed clearly. Please pray for me, he said. So it says, to proclaim to you fully the word of God, the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed to his saints, To them, God has chosen, to the saints, God has chosen to make known, that's revealing what was concealed, to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. And here it is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The presence of the Messiah, the presence of Christ, the presence of Jesus living in the hearts of the Gentiles. You can't find that anywhere in Scripture. It's not in Genesis. It's not in Numbers. It's not in Exodus. It's not in, any, it's not in Isaiah. It's not in any of the prophets. It's not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. The fact the person of Jesus would indwell the heart of a Gentile, we don't see that until we open the Pauline epistles. And when we open the Pauline epistles, we see Jesus residing in the hearts of believers. Paul writes in Ephesians 3, he prays that that the believers in Ephesus would come to the revelation of the indwelling presence of Christ, the one who loves them, the height, the depth, the width, 
the length of the love of Christ, that the Spirit in them would give them the revelation of this incredible love of Christ for them and life of Christ in them. So part of Paul's message that he wanted to proclaim was Christ in you, the hope of glory. The dominant message proclaimed in churches all over the world today is not Christ in you. The dominant message proclaimed today is be a follower of Jesus. That's the pre-cross ministry of Jesus to the nation of Israel, where he was calling people to follow him as the Messiah. It was very common during that time. John the Baptist had followers. John the Baptist had fully devoted followers to John the Baptist. Jesus had followers. John said, hey, those who are following me don't need to follow me anymore. They need to follow Jesus because he's the Messiah. I was telling you the Christ was coming. You followed me until he came. He's here now. Follow him. But eventually the Messiah, Christ, Jesus, went to the cross. And eventually he was crucified and buried and he was raised from the dead and he ascended into heaven. And now he sends his spirit to live in us. So on this side of the cross, following the ascension of Jesus and the coming of the spirit, we're not followers of Jesus. That's the most taught way of relating to Jesus in the majority of churches. The truth for us is not follow Jesus. The truth of us is we're filled with Jesus. It's a huge distinction. I'm not to be a follower of Jesus. I'm filled with Jesus. It's being led by the Spirit. The Spirit-filled life. When we're led by the Spirit, we're not under law. God it says in, in Galatians chapter 4 that God redeemed people from the law and he sent the Spirit of Jesus to live in us so that we call God Abba Father. You are filled with Christ. You're not a follower of Christ. You know how successful people were at following Jesus? There were none who were successful. All the disciples abandoned Jesus. Every one of them deserted him. They failed miserably. In following Jesus. We're not called to follow Jesus. That's a traditional teaching of the majority, but it's not a biblical teaching because we live in the age of the mystery. The mystery had not been revealed when Jesus was calling people to follow him because Jesus knew that one day his spirit was going to reside, reside in us. And Jesus revealed some of that to the disciples in John 13 through 17. But this idea in the Gentiles that Christ would indwell us was not revealed yet. Paul did not go into Gentile cities and teach people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. That was not the message of Paul. It wasn't the message that Jesus gave Paul. His message was, you are filled with Christ. You are filled with Christ. That is life changing to wake up every day knowing I'm filled with Christ rather than, boy, I'm going to give it my best shot again today to follow Jesus. I failed yesterday, but I'm going to give it my best shot today. I want you to think about something. Can the spirit of Christ indwell an unholy heart? No. Can the spirit of Christ indwell an unforgiven heart? No. Can the spirit of Christ indwell an unrighteous heart? No. See, the cross was a means to an end. What God was looking for was the indwelling person of Christ in us. And so in order for Christ to indwell us, our hearts have to be cleansed because Jesus can't dwell in an unclean heart. So the reason we've been made holy, the reason we've been forgiven, the reason we've been made righteous 
is so that the spirit of Christ could indwell us. And if I'm not completely forgiven, then Christ can't indwell my heart. And if I need to keep asking for forgiveness, then Christ cannot indwell my heart. Because the moment I sin, if that's not forgiven and I become unholy, then Christ has to leave because Christ can't indwell in an unholy heart. That's why there's no such thing as progressive sanctification. We are sanctified. That's what Jesus said in in Acts 26, 18. By faith, we're sanctified. We don't become more and more holy. We're completely holy. And, And I know the verse that says, you know, be holy for I am holy, which Peter was writing to the believers. And that was more about their lifestyle, that as you live among the Roman citizens, live in a a set-apart way. You be different. You be unique is is what that means. But it certainly doesn't mean clean yourself up from sin. The cross has taken care of that. And now Christ indwells us. And I want us to see this. The glorious riches of this ministry that Paul wanted to communicate clearly was Christ in you, the hope of glory. The majority of pastors don't teach that. They teach be fully devoted followers of Jesus, not that you are completely filled with Jesus. Now look at this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. What's the hope of a car without gas? Getting gas. What's the hope of a fish outside the water? Getting back in the water, the water in the fish, the fish in the water. What's the hope of a ball that has no air? Getting air in the ball. What's the hope of a human being that does not have God living within them. The presence of God in us. See, God God came to get his presence into us. The hope of humanity is the presence of God in us. And Jesus is God. And so for God to indwell the human heart, our sins have to be completely forgiven. We have to be holy. We have to be unblemished. We have to be righteous. Uh, We have to be perfect through what Christ did for us on the cross. The hope of mankind is the indwelling presence of God in us, and then God doesn't leave us or be out of fellowship with us based upon our day-to-day sin. That's traditional teaching, but it's certainly not biblical teaching. All right, so concerning the mystery of Christ, Paul asked for prayer in two areas. He asked that the Colossian people would pray that God would create an opportunity for he and his companions to share the mystery of Christ, which is what we've been talking about today, and that they would clearly, clearly communicate the mystery of Christ, which, again, the majority of of Bible teachers aren't proclaiming this teaching. They're proclaiming what's traditional, but certainly not what's biblical. They're mixing it all together. Now, Why would Paul ask for prayer when it comes to the proclamation of the mystery of Christ? Why would Paul ask for prayer as he teaches Christ is completely God and you are complete in Christ and Christ completely lives in you? Why would he ask the Colossian people to pray for him? I think the biggest reason has to do with Satan. Satan is against the message of Christ being completely God. That's reason number one. Most pastors do teach that. Reason number two, Satan is against the message of you are complete in Christ. Most believers don't understand their completeness in Christ. If they are talking about their completeness in Christ, then they're turned around and here's your identity, but you still need to. Here's your identity, but you still need to. This again, it's mixed. So Satan is against believers 
coming to understand this mystery that you and I just went through. This mystery, people are rescued and they're redeemed and forgiven and reconciled and holy and unblemished and blameless and their sin debt's been canceled and they're alive with God and they're free from the control of spiritual leaders. All right, reason number three, Paul asked for prayer is to me again, Satan is against the gospel. I think that's when Paul talks about putting on the armor of God, you're putting on these truths that we just talked about to defend ourselves against satanic lies. But the third reason is Satan is against the message of Christ in you. Satan is not against the message of, hey, be a fully devoted follower of Jesus because he knows people are going to fail. Remember, Peter said, hey, look, I I know all these disciples, they're all going to fail to follow you. They're not going to be fully devoted to following you. They're all going to fail you, but not me, not me. And remember, Satan was working against Peter. Remember, Jesus said, I prayed for you, Peter, that after you have fallen, you would be restored. See, Peter's whole focus was on being a fully devoted follower of Jesus. I'm going to be committed. I'm going to be devoted. I'm going to be more devoted than the others. And he failed miserably. The message for us today is we're filled with Christ. He leads us by his spirit from the inside out. Satan doesn't want anybody to come to to understand that. Reason number four, Paul asked for prayer. Satan is against the message of Christ being continually and clearly taught. Satan does not want this message taught. He will do everything he can to shut down the message that I've shared with you today. He tried to shut it down with Paul. He did everything he could to persecute Paul, to to get that message from being taught. That's why Paul is asking for prayer, because he had so much resistance to this message. He had so much persecution from the religious leaders of his day to this message. And he, he was asking for prayer, that the opportunity would come and he could communicate clearly the gospel. Well, why is Satan against the message of Christ being continually and clearly taught? I think there's one reason. Satan knows the message of Christ changes the lives of people. That what we share today, without watering it down with any works, well, you need to have a quiet time. You need to make sure you pray. You need to make sure you read your Bible. You need to make sure you meditate. By all means, join a small group, because if you don't, you can't grow. I mean, we didn't water down these truths with any legalistic requirements. Certainly, if somebody wants to pray, they can. If somebody wants to be in a small group, they can. If they, they want to read their Bible and journal and all those things, they can. But those add nothing to the cross. And if I think they add something to the cross, I've just watered down the power of the cross. And if I'm telling people to do those things, then I'm, I'm watering down the cross. I can teach on prayer. I can, I can teach on how to understand your Bible. I mean, we can help people in these areas. But there's no requirements. It's what Jesus did on the cross. It's him and Christ in us. So Satan knows the message of Christ changes the lives of people. This mystery changes the lives of people. Consequently, Satan works against those who teach the completeness of who Christ is, those who teach a believer's completeness in Christ, and those who teach the indwelling presence of Christ. Satan will work against their ministry. He will work against their message. His work typically comes through religious leaders. Religious leaders. Remember what Jesus told the Pharisees. 
you are of your father, the devil. The religious system of Jesus's day was ran by Satan. When religious leaders come against the mystery, the gospel of what Christ did and put it down, I'm not saying they're not believers and they haven't come to faith in Christ, but Satan will work in them, through them, to shut down this message. That's why Paul is praying that this door would be open to proclaim the message, that he would proclaim it clearly and fully. That's what Paul did all over the Roman Empire. He went into these Gentile cities. He proclaimed the good news of grace. He proclaimed the mystery of who Christ is and what Christ did. And you know, you guys, it's the same message that God wants communicated today. Nothing's changed. The message hasn't changed. The mission hasn't changed. The resistance to the message hasn't changed. But it's the message that God wants communicated. And maybe you're listening to this today on my podcast. Maybe you're watching on a video. I would encourage you to go to my website. It's called Grace Reach. It's gracereach.org. And on the website is the vision of Grace Reach. It's to reach people with this message that we talked about today. It's, it's the mission of reaching people with the good news of grace. Because the majority of believers that I've been around They've never even heard much of what I'm sharing today. The pastors that I've had relationships with, they don't understand it. They're mixing everything together. And so I just feel like that part of what God's called me to do is to help people understand this message. And so if you go to gracereach.org, I have videos there. I have blogs that I've written, lots of articles. It'll direct you to all my social media channels. Also, if you want to support the ministry financially to help us reach more and more people, we want to open up something called Grace Reach on college campuses where we're sharing this message with college students. We want to start grace-based churches around the world, training pastors to plant churches around the world. We want to continue to do the podcast and the videos and and just get this message out. So if you'd like to support this ministry, you can go to gracereach.org and you can go to donate and just whatever the Lord puts on your heart, if that's something you feel you would like to do. Hey, I want to thank you for listening to this teaching today. If you enjoy these teachings, you may also enjoy the resources on my website, gracereach.org, and you may also enjoy my books, which are available on Amazon. I also have a YouTube channel and a Facebook page, and you can find the links to all my resources and the details of this podcast teaching. If you'd like to support my ministry in reaching more and more people with the good news of God's grace and teaching more and more people about His grace, click the donate button on the Grace Reach website, again, which is gracereach.org. Hey, thank you guys so much for listening to this teaching today. I pray that through these teachings, you are understanding the Bible more fully and you're understanding God's grace more clearly. Have a great day.